You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. We're on our fourth Sunday on the Belt of Truth series. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about what, who we were or what we were like before we came to know Jesus. Or if you don't know Jesus today, what your condition is now. And today's the second part is what has been achieved and what are we like now, the truths of who we are in Jesus now after believing. And that's always up for contention. We live in a spiritual battle and you're always prompted to doubt, to fear. And if we don't know who we are and able to stand on it, then I'll tell you we will struggle. And there'll come a time when you start believing lies that are being said to you. And your self-worth and everything will go out the window because we don't know who we are. The amazing thing is when Jesus was tempted, he always said, it is written. It is written. And if you don't know what's written, then you're going to struggle knowing what to say when those thoughts and accusations come. We read from John chapter 10, just a small recap. The thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come, they may have life in abundance. In fact, more than abundance. I'm going to bring that back at the very end because I think there's something important in that. So we talked mainly last time, I, I kind of said how mankind in the garden and the illustration of falling away from God, doing our own thing, sin entering the world, and use some of the scriptures that Paul later used when he wrote to the Romans and the Corinthians and Galatians to show the changes that he said had taken place in his own life. And I think from him we learned so much about where he was and what he recognized had happened in him. And I think his is a picture of us. And if we could grasp some of those things. So the first thing he did in writing to the book in Ephesians, it was chapter 2, he said, my condition was, and ours, dead in transgression and sin. He thought it was alive. He thought he had everything together. People knew him. People feared him. He had these great credentials. Have he come under Gamaliel in the temple? He was really up there in pharisaical circles, and yet he could say he was dead and nothing was meaning anything. He thought he knew the law, and he knew it legalistically, but he had no spiritual connection to the law. And that really pulled him up, and I found it interesting very interesting that he sees a great light. He comes physically blind so that God can help him to see spiritual eyes and spiritual truth. And I just just think it's so important. Each one of us can find ourselves where Paul was, I'm sure, to some degree. And he actually, I do believe, pursued people to death, men and women. He even said that himself, I pursued them to death. So, you know, he called himself, I think, the worst of sinners and things like this. So I think we can fit in there somewhere. The other thing he said was that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They can't even see the glory of the gospel that's radiating in the face of Jesus because they're spiritually blind. And he said, that's where we all were. And maybe some of us still are. And I'm sorry, I'm including that in there. In John... Chapter 16, Jesus speaking, he says, When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And the sin is, they don't believe that Jesus is God or Lord. The sin is, they don't believe in Jesus. And if you notice, the devil blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's the sin. 
We think it's just doing something wrong. But Jesus is here saying, you don't believe in me, and that's the sin. These were some believers. Um, it could be any race. At one time, they used to call them Gentile sinners. They know the Jews looked down on anybody that wasn't Jewish. But it wasn't just Gentiles who were unbelievers. There's a lot of Jews who weren't believers either. So it's not about race. It's about knowing Jesus. He says something very interestingly in Ephesians chapter 2. And I might, you might have heard me say this before, but it's so important we understand something. He said about we were by nature deserving of God's wrath, by nature. I'm going to be using quite a few scriptures, and I think it's, I don't apologize for that, because I want you to also see the consistency of the Bible, that people writing individual gospels and individual letters, so much of what they're saying marries up with what others are also saying. It wasn't collusion. The Bible can stand up for itself, and it's trustworthy. So this word... Nature. Peter also uses it. And I'll be quoting for that a bit later on. But this word nature, it comes from a Greek word called phusis. And as, as many words, it can have different variations of what it means. And this is some of the things that this word nature means. It means birth. It means your physical origin. Your hereditary line. It can also mean a mode of feeling and acting which by long habit has become nature. All these words, fuses, about inside us before Jesus, all we could know was wrath because of those things. Because of where we'd come from, our hereditary line. And I came across this in Isaiah chapter 43. It's only about three verses, but it's something unusual. And it says this, and some of this I'm reading now is actually mentioned in the book of Hebrews, talking about the new covenant. It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me. Now, I look at that, and I think, if I've got a first father, then logically, you think, then there must be a second father. Otherwise, it'd be meaningless. Now, some people think the first father refers to Adam. Some think it's Abraham, and some think it's Jacob. For me, I think it's Adam. My first father sinned. The thing was, with Adam, he was sinless until whereas I think Jacob and Abraham you know natural human being is what we've inherited so I think there's a, for me there's an implication of maybe it is Adam I think we're deserving of God's wrath because of my family line connected to the original four with Adam there's something within us that just propensity to turn that way, like a bowling green ball. You know, you bowl a ball and it's got a, a negative bias, it just turns away. There's something that happened in us that actually we were caught in our old nature or, or, or the nature. I believe it's essential that we believe that Jesus was part of that human line. If you want to call it the Adamic line, whatever. I believe it was essential because if he wasn't, 
then a lot of following scriptures would make no sense. If you look in the, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you'll see two different genealogies. And many writers or people who have studied this believe that one represents Joseph's line and the other represents Mary's line. You look at the one in Luke where many think that's Mary's line. It goes through David's son Nathan back to King David and Joseph's one goes through Solomon back to King David. There is a hereditary line that goes back. Um, in Luke's one, it says Joseph was the father of Jesus, so it was thought. It doesn't actually mention Mary, but a, a lot of the writings at the time, a son-in-law was almost spoken of like a son. But if you look, it's two different fathers in both those genealogies, and one apparently some scholars believe was Mary's father. And it just shows that actually both sides, um, through Joseph, apparently legally, when Joseph um, married Mary, legally he would have adopted Jesus as his own son, legalistically, so it would have been a legal thing. So in a sense, both lines go back to King David on both sides, Mary and on Joseph. David's done a brilliant talk of three weeks ago, and it's all been great on this, knowing who Jesus really is, but about the virgin birth. I think it's essential we believe in the virgin birth. And I think the Bible speaks clearly. I, I think it shows it was. But I think the great problem we have, there is, and you can read about this, some people think that what was implanted into Mary, Mary was an embryo. And that basically all she did become was a surrogate mother. So that Jesus actually wouldn't have had any human DNA. Some people actually believe he wasn't fully man. And I don't believe the Bible shows that at all. I think unless Jesus was fully human like we are or part of the human line, I don't think he could have been a sacrifice for sin. He couldn't have been tempted in every way just like we are. I think it's an essential part of us. He was fully human and he walked exactly where we walked. I don't think if he wasn't, it could have broken the, the curse of the law that was placed on us. No, not many people think the law actually... When it was spoken, there was a curse spoken over it. When the people of Israel went into the promised land, Moses told half the group to go onto one mountain, Mount Ebal, half the group to go on Mount Gerizim, and then you spoke out the law. And you said, blessed are those who keep this law. You know, your crops will increase, your, your animals will, will, will multiply, your enemies won't attack you, you'll be healthy, everything will go well for you. And, and they spoke blessings over the people. But then from the other mountain... They spoke curses. You'll be cursed if you don't fulfill the law. Your crops won't increase. Your, your animals won't, you know. Your enemies will attack you. You will suffer. And it was actually a spoken curse. It's the most unusual thing to do. But that's what Moses told them to do, and they did it. And actually, if you read in Galatians chapter 3, this is Paul writing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that it is written. Cursed is every man or anybody who's hung on a tree. And I know it's a cross, but it's wood. You know, you can see the illustration. So even Paul's saying it's, it was there, but it was broken by Jesus. And I find it interesting that some of the very last words spoken by Jesus on the cross, and slight variation in the Gospels, one does use this phrase as his last words spoken, it is finished. 
or it is completed. And we've sung that this morning. It is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. The curse of the law has been broken. Sin has been paid for. He took the curse upon himself and the punishment we should have had. And then he declares it is finished. It's completed. The other thing that Jesus constantly referred to himself as is the Son of Man. 81 times in the four Gospels, he refers to himself and others do as the Son of Man. He never went proclaiming himself as the Son of God. You never hear him. Was, on one occasion, did he say, it's true, I am. Only when he was really pushed by the Pharisees and, you know, before his execution. Others refer to him as the Son of God. John at the very end of, the, of, of his book, he wants to say about the miracles. He said this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And even the devil in Luke chapter 4 says that this is something he said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. But Jesus himself, just before the Passover, before he was to be crucified, he said, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He didn't say the Son of God. He said the Son of Man. And then in Luke 22, Jesus declares, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He never said the Son of God is going to be seated. It's the Son of Man. In the very beginning in the garden some of the we went through some of the things God said about you know to Adam and what's going to happen now and to the woman what's going to happen you know about pain in childbirth and such things there but there was one thing he does also say talking to the servant who we believe represents the devil the woman's seed will crush your head the woman's seed will crush your head I just think it's there all the way through Jesus was fully human. Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are. This is what it says. But if you look in the book of Hebrews, it says, For we do not have a high priest that is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. He's tempted, just as we are. devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Three times we, we have the recording of what happened. But if you read James 1, verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So why would you try to tempt somebody to sin if they can't be tempted? Why would the devil do it? It'd be just wasting his time. But I believe it shows that Jesus could be tempted like just like us, but he chose not to sin. If Jesus had a get-out-of-jail-free card, then it doesn't help us very much. And I don't believe he did. But he chose to be obedient. He chose to be. I think we need to understand the connection between Adam and Jesus, the biblical understanding. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 5, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So Adam's many became sinners. Through Jesus, many became righteous. One act of obedience totally destroyed 
the curse of the law and the disobedience of Adam. It defeated death and it brought eternal life. God, these are staggering things. Defeated death and brought eternal life. And as we know, that famous verse in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And coming, this is the words that keep him, whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It's written. If you don't believe in Jesus, one and God's one and only son, you're still condemned. But he's not condemned. You're condemning yourself. That's where you are. It's like, this is the escape route, but we're, we're missing it all the time. That's the way to eternal life, but we keep here. It's about believing. Could I just, here, just put, a, this is just me thinking on it. It's a cautionary thing. Over the years, there's been what they call the interfaith movement. And I'm sure very sincere Christians and others have got together to think, we're all children of God. Every road leads to God. Everyone, I've heard it said. And in fact, there was a time, and I don't know that they still do this, Church of England would have some of these interfaith gatherings. I think one took place at Canterbury. And I remember there was a guy, a Church of England minister outside with his little placard protesting. Because part of the service was they took bread and wine. Only as they took the wine, the suggestion was, when you take the wine, you know, you think of your God and everything else. Can I just say... We're not all children of God. We're all created by God. We're all made in God's image, but we are not children of God. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. It might sound arrogant, but I just know one thing. Buddha didn't die for me. Muhammad didn't die for me. Jesus did. And if you close the door on that and make everybody think it's all the same, we have missed the point completely. And we're telling lies that will not help them in any way at all. And it's not arrogance. But I, think, I believe it's the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know, I can understand it makes it sound so lovely. We want everybody to be together. But it's, this, it's not this kind of love that Jesus showed. He spoke the truth. We just, I've often thought about some of our seeker-sensitive services. We won't make anything sound too, too rough just in case it upsets somebody. But it might be the way to save them by doing that and to give them a better life, not to keep them where they are. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. Robin born physically. So only Jesus can bring your spirits alive, a life-giving spirit. Let's just look at the changes that have taken place. It's difficult saying some of these because it's far more than I put here, but they all happen probably instantaneously. You know, you look and events happen, then you try and unpick actually what hasn't happened. So I do believe the first thing that happened, or one of the first, our old nature my hereditary line back to Adam, and I'll use that phrase, finished. Because when I died, when I died to my past, I was born again. 
a new life came. And I want you to just picture, I'm passion, passionate about believers' baptisms. I've come through the Church of England, I've been through the URC, and all what they have. But even when we did on the URC, I knew complete immersion was the way for me that was right. And I think it's completely and utterly biblical. God gives us physical evidences to help us understand what spiritually has happened. We've taken the bread and wine. That's a physical emblem. It's to help us understand. And I want you to imagine here on a baptismal pool or in a river, whatever, you stand on the edge. And as you go down into that water, Paul said it becomes your tomb. You're dying. But then you come out on the other side, a brand new life. The old's gone and it's left in the, in the tomb but you've resurrected to a new life. We're saying goodbye to kind of the old nature. It's dead, it's buried, it's with Jesus. Now we're with Jesus. Paul says this in Romans, we were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's symbolic of in the tomb, dying, but being raised to new life. We were born again. In that moment you believed, you were born again. And we're no longer in Adam, we're now in Christ. What a change. A new family line. Peter, as I said, this word fuses nature. In Peter 2, verse 1, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. The divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. A new nature, partakers of God's divine nature. The old nature gone and dead and buried. Some new translations, they keep saying, no, you're fighting your old nature. No, you're not. Your old nature's gone. You fight against the flesh now. You know, the battle that does go on between our spirit and our flesh. But the old nature, you're not in Adam anymore. You're in Christ now. You're in God now. We participate in the divine nature. We have a brand new family. God's our father. We were spiritually born again. That moment of believing, you were spiritually born again. And John says this in John 1, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or your family line, but now, not of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. Can we grasp that we're now born of God? And we have been so totally changed. Not born of natural descent, but born of God. And John tells us in chapter 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We've had a spiritual rebirth, and we became children of God through our faith and belief in what Jesus has done. And if we don't see that, if we can't accept that, the devil will have a field day with us. John continued, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. This is Jesus speaking. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and their life. That's the truth. That's where we stand. And we became children of God through our faith and belief in Jesus. And if you don't have faith and belief in Jesus, you can 
become children of God by doing just that. And what else changed? We're no longer dead in transgressions and sins. We're not. We were, but we're not now. Why? Because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression and sin. It's by grace you have been saved. We were there, but if you believe in Jesus, you're not anymore. You're not. We are totally forgiven. Totally. In Acts 10, we read, All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We went to Irene's uh, sister's funeral on Wednesday afternoon, and they sang a hymn, and I, I love this hymn. It's an old hymn, and actually I think David might have quoted some of it in his prayer this morning. Just tell you, this hymn is called It Is Well With My Soul written by a man called Horatio Spafford. If you don't know the hymn, look it up when you get home. This man sent his wife and his four daughters on a sailing ship to England after a great fire in Chicago. He sent them across. And halfway across the Atlantic, it hit an iron ship, I think, called the SS Great Britain, I think it was that. And the sailing ship went down. His four daughters were killed. His wife, he got a telegram from his wife saying, saved alone. He'd taken her to Ireland. So he gets the next boat he can when he's cleared things away. And he's going across the Atlantic and at midnight one night, a knock on his cabin door and the captain's there and said, this is the place. So he goes up on deck and it's the place where his daughters died. And he went down into his cabin and he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. And some of the words were about, you know, if Satan should buffet, trials should come. But this blessed assurance control that he has regard for my helpless estate, it is well. It is well with my soul. But he also wrote another verse. And it was this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And this is what we have to grasp it's not just a bit of our sin. It's not the worst bits we think of, but it's every bit we think of. Every bit. The whole is nailed to the cross and we don't bear it anymore. That's why Paul could say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's all nailed to the cross. Every last bit. Every bit. But we find it hard to forget. I'd often thought, you know, you have a cup of tea and, you know, it stains the cup sometimes. You might wash it, but the stain's still there. Even the stain's gone. If only we could believe it and live in it and know how to deal with that and help each other to deal with that. I believe we're forgiven, past, present, and future. That doesn't mean to say we don't have to say sorry when I've done something wrong, but I believe the promise is there. God will forgive us. Jesus only had to die once. Don't have to die every He's died once for all. So powerful was his death. The other thing we have is peace with God. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just say that word peace is shalom? We sometimes think peace is just an absence of war, nice and quiet. It's not. It's more than that. Peace is active. It's a wholeness. It's about your whole life. 
It's far more than just what we've made it. It's a, it's a big word, shalom. And we have this shalom with God, this active peace, always working for the best in all of us. And the other thing that happened when we believed, we're not blinded anymore. The devil doesn't deceive us. We can see the glory of the gospel radiating in the face of Jesus. And if you're a believer now, you're thankful for the gospel. It's the good news about salvation. And the other thing we have is eternal life. Eternal life. Again, Paul writing to the Romans, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you, lead, you reap leads to holiness and the result is Eternal life, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death came through Adam, life's come through Jesus. So Paul did say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all, all will be made alive. Just, a lot, just finishing off. Paul could write to the Corinthians, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have eternal life by our faith in Jesus. Again, one of my favorite scriptures from Galatians. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. For I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be attained and gained through the law... Christ died for nothing. You'll never work your way into heaven. If you miss the law at one point, then you've broken the law. The other thing I think that happened when we believed, we entered into a brand new covenant. Not one based on law or legalism, but based on Jesus' sacrifice and the grace of God. Jesus said at the meal, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. The other one's finished. It's finished. It's complete. But now there's a new one. And what is the new covenant? The Holy Spirit also testifies to this. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he has their sins and their lawless acts. I will remember no more. And that's the quote from the Isaiah one that I read earlier. It's not even keeping a record of them. It's no wiping a slate clean because you don't keep a slate. A new covenant. But when you go wrong, you'll know it inside. It's a spiritual thing that's going to happen now, not legalistic. And the last thing I want to say is this, though. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's important. He, God, has made us competent ministers of a new covenant, not the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We are ministers of this new confident, com, uh, covenant. We should be sharing this good news with people. We're under a new covenant, and it's all available in Jesus. So the thief comes only to steal, steal kill, and destroy. 
He comes to steal what we have in Jesus. He comes to make us doubt what we believe in Jesus. He comes to try and kill the faith and hope we have in Jesus. He comes to try and steal the peace we have in Jesus. And he comes to make us doubt that we really are forgiven and have become children of the living God. But Jesus comes that we may have life, real life, spiritual life, and we have it more abundantly. Amen. Jesus, pray. Father, we're grateful for such a great salvation, but I'm very conscious so often there it's about those who believe. Father, I just pray that if the, anybody here this morning does not believe in those things, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit they would have an encounter with you. You would open their eyes to see the truth of Jesus. If any of us who do believe in you, Father, and we've forgotten some of these things, again, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would again remind us of these truths about what Jesus has achieved for us. And I pray each one of us will just have a deeper encounter with Jesus day by day. You're spiritually speaking to us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we truly would live as you desire us to live and become ministers of telling our town, our world, that we're living under a new covenant of love and of grace and of mercy. And that through Jesus is life, eternal life and wholeness. Holy Spirit, move in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit Brixham.Church.